Nehemiah chapter 4 this morning. Nehemiah chapter 4, and if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 400. I've entitled today's message, Building in the Face of Opposition. As always, I'm going to begin in a word of prayer, and then we will consider this text. Let's bow together. Our Lord, once more, we are grateful to gather together in worship. We are grateful for the truths that we have already sung about and read about and prayed about. We thank you so much for the gift of your Son, for his coming into the world. And Lord, we also thank you for the written word and for this book of Nehemiah, such an important book in our day. Help us, Lord, as we explore the fourth chapter of this book. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it well to our lives and to the life, to the life of this church. And Lord, please be glorified as we do so. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So about two years ago, a man named Aaron Wren published an article in First Things entitled, The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. This article traces the major movements of secularization in modern American society. And he traces the impact that secularization has had on the American church. And he divides the process into three different eras. The first phase he calls the positive world. The positive world. This runs from the turn of the 20th century until 1994. And in the positive world, society retained a mostly positive view of Christianity. Christian moral norms pervaded society. And being a Christian even came with certain social benefits. But then America moved out of positive world into what he calls a neutral world. Neutral world ran from 1994 to 2014. And during this phase, society took a neutral stance toward Christianity, neither privileging nor disfavoring it. During this time, Christian moral norms still retained a residual presence in society, but certainly lost its dominant presence. And one could be either religious or non-religious with no impact on their social standing. Well, then we moved into the final phase, which he calls negative world. And that runs from 2014 until the present time. And in this phase of American secularization, to be a traditional Christian is actually detrimental to your social status. In this phase, Christian morality is seen as harmful, repressive, and even threatening to the public good. In this phase, many people look at the church as the problem, not as the solution to the problem. Now, friends, I still believe that we live in the freest country on planet Earth, and that to be a Christian here, to engage in gospel ministry here, is still easier than anywhere else on Earth. And yet I think we would all have to acknowledge also that it is becoming harder to be a faithful Christian here than in times past. 
the pressures are stronger than they once were. And so, my friends, going forward, we're going to have to learn how to do gospel ministry in the face of opposition. This is what makes the book of Nehemiah so important. Now, if you're just joining us this week, we have been in a series through the book of Nehemiah for about a month and a half now. We've got a couple months to go. And if you don't know who Nehemiah was, he was an Israelite who lived in Persia about 2,500 years ago. Nehemiah was also a very godly man. He had a heart for God and for his people. And so when Nehemiah learned that God's people in Israel were in a beleaguered state, it just broke Nehemiah's heart. And so he began to fast and to pray and and to brainstorm about ways that God might use him to help revitalize the nation of Israel. And finally, Nehemiah came up with a plan. And so he went to his boss, King Artaxerxes, and he asked permission to leave Susa, where he was, to go all the way back to Jerusalem and to help God's people revitalize their nation. Nehemiah understood that if Israel was to be revitalized, it would have to start with that capital city, Jerusalem. And that if Jerusalem was to be revitalized, it would need to begin with their city walls. Those walls would have to be rebuilt. And so Nehemiah's plan was to go to Jerusalem and to lead a program of rebuilding the city's walls. God worked in the heart of King Artaxerxes, and he gave permission to Nehemiah to go and to undertake this project. And so for more than a month now, we have been following Nehemiah's story, first as he learned about Israel's plight, and then as he prayed and fasted and tried to wrestle with what he could do to help. And then we followed him on this long journey back to Jerusalem, and we have seen him and the workers begin the project. We've learned a lot of critical lessons about spiritual leadership from this book already. We've learned that if we are to accomplish something great for God, then we must be a people of prayer. We've learned that we must also be a people of moral courage. And we must be a people who have a clear sense of our mission. And we must also be able to work together in perfect synergy. All of these things are necessary if we are to accomplish God's work in this day. Now as we move on to Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to learn how to handle opposition to the work. And specifically what this chapter is going to teach us is that if we would be used of God to achieve something great, then we must learn to persevere in the face of opposition. And I'll say that again. If we would be used of God to achieve something great, then we must learn how to persevere in the face of opposition. Let's see this together now, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Okay, so as we launch into chapter 4, we see that we are immediately facing adversaries. 
Nehemiah and his workers have been, have been stationed along the perimeter of Jerusalem's wall. They've been laboring to raise the wall, and now they are facing this opposition. And the ringleader here is this man called Sanballat. Now, I trust that you recognize that name because we saw it a few weeks ago. Now, Sanballat was the governor of Samaria in Nehemiah's day. This was the province immediately to the north of Jerusalem. And the population of that province was very hostile to the Jews. And Sanballat was the ringleader of this group. And so when Sanballat found out that the Jews were actually making progress in rebuilding Jerusalem's walls, he was enraged. That's what the text says. He was enraged about it. Why? Because he saw a revitalized Judea as a threat to the province of Samaria. He believed that if the Jews rose in power, that it would cost him power. And so Sanballat determined that he would have to stop the revitalization of Israel at all costs. And he begins with this strategy. He is going to apply ridicule. He's going to try to demoralize the people of God to make them give up the work. And so we see here at the first part of verse 2 that he begins, he begins trying to make them feel small. He says, who are these feeble Jews? Such a big project. They are so few in number. They don't really think they can do this thing, do they? He wants them to feel small. Then you notice he also tries to make them believe that their mission was foolish. He says, do they really think they can do this job? What, are they going to do it in a day? Are they going to gather up all of the rubble around their city and somehow fashion it into walls? These stones are burned at that. Are they going to do this? He is just heaping his ridicule on the people of God, hoping that this will cause them to be demoralized and to give up the project. Then we notice that Sanballat here is not alone, verse 3. It says, and Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. Now you should remember Tobiah as well. He was the governor of Ammon, which was a province to the northeast of Jerusalem. And Tobiah adds his own ridicule to the mix. Second part of verse 3, he says, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. So you've got Sanballat, and you've got his brothers, and his army, and they're all heaping their ridicule, saying, you Jews, don't you see how feeble you are, how weak you are? Don't you see that you cannot possibly gather up all these ruins and make a city out of them? And then you've got Tobias saying the, these cruel words about their craftsmanship. Look at this thing you're building. You better not let any critters jump on top of it. They're liable to bring it down. And they're just laughing at God's people as they try to do their work. You know, friends, ridicule is a very easy tool to use. It requires no intellectual labor, no facts, no arguments. All it takes is the ability to make another person feel silly. But you know, it can be a really effective tool as well. It can produce feelings of shame and fear and anger and a host of other negative emotions in the recipient. It can even prompt a person to abandon the good work that God would have them to do. 
you don't have to take my word for this. Haven't you seen it for yourself in your own personal life? How many times did you have an opportunity to share the gospel with one of your coworkers, but you chose not to seize the moment because you were afraid that if you shared the gospel that they would mock you in return? And you fear that maybe they would go to your other coworkers and they'd all get a good chuckle out of you. It was your fear of ridicule that kept you silent. For some of you school children, how many times have you seen one of your classmates getting picked on in school and you knew that you should have done something to stand up for them, but you didn't because you were afraid? You thought if you stood up for that kid, then everyone would turn on you, then you'd start getting picked on. You'd be the object of ridicule. So you didn't do the right thing because of fear of being laughed at. I wonder how many church leaders have stopped contending for the faith because they're afraid of the social media mob. If I speak the words of God with clarity and conviction and people in my town hear about it, oh, I'll, I'll never, never stop receiving flack for it. I'll get social media posts coming against me. I'll get the letters to the editor. I'll get phone calls to my church voicemail. And they just can't bear the thought of that kind of scorn. And so they compromise on the doctrines of Scripture. I wonder how many people have abandoned Christ altogether because they just couldn't bear to be on the receiving end of other people's jokes. You see, friends, ridicule is an extremely effective tool. Even the best of us are susceptible to it. And that's why Sanballat and Tobiah and all of their followers heaped ridicule on Nehemiah and all those workers on Jerusalem's walls. They thought if they could just present, present cruel enough verbal attacks that this is all it would take to make God's people drop their tools and go home, give up this good work. Well, friends, how are we to stand up to the world's ridicule? What must we do when this happens? Well, friends, as we look at Nehemiah's example, we find what we must do. We must pray and then press on. It's as simple as that. When the ridicule comes, you pray and you press on. Look at verses 4 and 5. Here we find Nehemiah's prayer. He says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. This is so important, my friends. Because Nehemiah and all of God's people here, they have just had had all of this mockery heaped upon them. And we know the impact that can have on a person. But instead of returning in kind, heaping their own scorn on their adversaries, or instead of responding to this with violence, instead Nehemiah just takes it to God. And that is the right thing to do. When the world despises you, when they, they are heaping their scorn upon you, the thing to do is not to repay in kind to them, but to go to God and take it to Him in prayer. 
Some of you may find the content of Nehemiah's prayer very jarring, but it need not be. Because understand what he is doing here. As far as Nehemiah was concerned, Sanballat and Tobiah and all of their followers, these guys were just as hardened in their unbelief as the Pharaoh who had enslaved their ancestors generations ago. You remember Pharaoh. He hardened his heart against God. He enslaved the people of God, and he was not going to change. And for that reason, God had to bring his judgments down on Pharaoh. That was the only way for the Jewish people to be freed. Well, as Nehemiah looked at Sanballat and Tobiah and the others, he saw the same story repeating itself. Here was a godless group of men, hardened in their unbelief. They would not change. And so what should Nehemiah pray? He prays, God, it's not my place to deal with these people, but I know it is your place. You are God. So God, if they are not to be saved, then just take them out of the way. Just hasten your judgments. Because these are your enemies, and they are fighting against your people and your cause. And this cannot be, God. It cannot be. So God, take them away so that your name can be glorified and that your nation can be rebuilt and your people can be revitalized. That's what he's praying. This is a God-centered prayer from beginning to end. It's a good prayer. It's the kind of prayer that we can offer to God when we are facing the anger of the world. We can pray, God, you know our situation. You know our plight. You know people are coming at us from all sides with their vitriol. God, we desire that they would be redeemed. But if that is not to be the case, if they have hardened themselves against you, then would you do the next best thing and just clear them out of our path so that we can do your work without hindrance? That's the right kind of prayer to offer. But then we notice after Nehemiah prays, he then presses on, verse 6. He says, so we built the wall. Isn't that a beautiful, concise statement? They're getting all of this vitriol. They don't respond in kind. Instead, they take it to God in prayer. And now that they are in their proper mindset again, they just get right back to work. It's time to build that wall again. And that's what they do. And notice, they start making some real progress. Second part of verse 6, it says, And the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. In responding this way, my friends, Nehemiah succeeded in making his opponents look very small. They wanted him to look small. But by ignoring them, simply taking it to God and persevering, he's made them look small. And the work is continuing. Now, my friends, if you are committed to doing God's work, you can be sure that there will be ridicule. You can be sure of it. Christian parents, as you try to raise your children in the nurture of the Lord, you can be sure that there are going to be non-believing family members and neighbors and co-workers and others who look at what you're trying to accomplish and they're just going to laugh at your efforts. 
Do you really think you in this culture, in this world, that you can raise children to know and love God? Do you really think you can do that? What a silly thing. They're going to look at your priorities as a parent and say, oh, what a foolish set of priorities you have. They're going to heap the ridicule on you. And Christian members of Grace Baptist Church, as you are giving yourselves to the work of the Lord through this through this church, there will be ridicule. They'll say, what are you doing? Giving all of this time, all of this effort, all of your financial resources to this church. Why are you doing that? Why are you waking up early on Sunday morning and dressing in your best clothes and coming to church? Why not just sleep in? You never get to sleep in. Why do you live like this? There will be teasing, scorn, mocking. It will come. But friends, when it comes, you know what to do. You just take it all to God in prayer. Every bit of it. Cast that burden on Him because He cares for you. And then you resolve to just press on. You're going to keep doing what you know is right because you believe that the Lord is going to honor your faithfulness. And that you will accomplish incredible things through His power. You pray and you press on. And now we continue the story. Verse 7. It says, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were being closed, they were very angry. So Nehemiah and his workers, they have committed to just pressing on despite the ridicule. Well, now we see the reaction of God's enemies. They are furious. They are furious that the work has continued. And we see that things have escalated because it used to be just Sambala and Tobiah who led provinces to the north of Jerusalem. But now we've got all of these others mentioned. We have the, the Arabs mentioned. This refers to tribes to the south of Jerusalem. And then we've got the uh, Ammonites. They were to the east of Jerusalem. And we've got the Ashdodites. They were to the west of Jerusalem. In fact, not far from the modern-day Gaza Strip. And so what started out is just some ridicule from a handful of guys north of Jerusalem. We now have an angry mob that surrounds Jerusalem on all sides, north, south, east, and west. The numbers are increasing, and the rage is increasing. And look at verse 8. It says, And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So when the ridicule didn't work, they decided to turn to mob violence. Mob violence. They've decided to all band together to attack the workers, to scatter their families, to rip down the walls. And down to verse 11, they say, they will not know or see it till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Can you hear the, just the perverted glee in that? We're going to come. We're going to kill those workers. We're going to tear down their wall, and they're not even going to see it coming. Won't it be glorious? That's what they have moved to, from ridicule to violence. And you know... 
at this, some of those workers did begin to reevaluate things. Look at verse 10. It says, And so in Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So do, you, do you see what's happening now? As the, the violence has been added to the ridicule, now the workers on the wall are saying, oh, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe we are feeble. Maybe this idea that, that we could rebuild an entire city wall, maybe this is a fool's errand. Maybe we should give up. And then verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times. That means they said it over and over to us. You must return to us. Okay, this is talking about the women and children and the elderly who lived in the villages outside of Jerusalem. The ones that were bordering the Ammonites and the Ashdodites and Tobiah and Sanballat and all of those guys. You see, all of their able-bodied men have gone to Jerusalem to build the wall. That means these villages bordering God's enemies, they're all really vulnerable now. And they're saying, you know what? We think our men need to come home. If that attack comes, we are completely vulnerable. We need our men back here to pick up their weapons and fight. And so it's coming from the workers themselves, and it's coming from their families living in the villages outside of town that maybe it's time for us to give up this work. Maybe we should just pack it up and go home. You see, their resolve was beginning to crumble under the withering opposition from God's enemies. And according to psychologists, friends, this kind of reaction to a physical threat is completely normal. Studies show that threats against one's person can cause feelings of confusion, anxiety, shame, guilt, a sense of powerlessness, and more. Long-term, the consequences of living under threats can be depression, uh, substance abuse, and chronic pain. This is precisely what all of these workers were beginning to experience. The ridicule was bad enough, but now to know that their very lives and their property was at stake, they were beginning to feel enough anxiety that they were reconsidering the work. But you know, friends, as believers, we don't have to succumb to those emotions because we have all of the resources that we need to persevere even under the worst of circumstances. Let's look how Nehemiah handles this latest challenge. Beginning of verse 9. He says, and we prayed to our God. We prayed to our God. Are you starting to get the sense that Nehemiah was a man of prayer? When he first learned of the, the plight of God's people in Israel, remember, his first response was fasting and prayer. And then when he went to King Artaxerxes to ask permission to go and help the people of Jerusalem, he was praying through the whole conversation. Remember, he was just letting letting up those brief prayers to God, even as he was talking to the king. And then as they began to build and the ridicule came, he prayed through it. And now the physical threats are coming. And it looks like the Jewish people are, are at, at risk of immediate invasion. And again he prays. 
Nehemiah was a man of prayer. And he shows us that all of God's people must be people of prayer. This is the first resource that we have available to us in trying times. To take our circumstances before the throne of heaven and to ask God, who is infinite in power and wisdom, to do what we cannot do for ourselves. That God would resolve this for us. We must at all times go to the Lord in prayer. But then look at the next thing Nehemiah does, second part of verse 9. He says, we prayed to our God and, okay, and we set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So Nehemiah prays, but then he also takes prudent steps to ensure worker safety. He sets up a guard. You know, friends, these two things are not at odds with one another. Prayer and concrete action, in fact, they're meant to go together. We pray our hearts out to God. We ask Him to work in our situations. But then we also take this brain that God gave us and we, we use the wisdom that we have learned from Scripture and we apply it ourselves practically to the matter at hand and we take prudent steps to navigate the situation. So we pray to God, prudent steps. And then Nehemiah does something else. We see verse 14, he also preached to his workers. He preached to them. Verse 14, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, here's his sermon, do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of them. Instead, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. So Nehemiah steps behind his pulpit, as it were, and he looks into the fearful eyes of those workers and he says to them, Are you guys afraid of Sanballat? Are you afraid of Tobiah? The army of Samaria? Are you afraid of the Ammonites and the Ashdodites and the Arabs? These guys? Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. The Lord, great and awesome. You remember that it doesn't matter how few in number you are, how weak you are, because behind you stands a God who is all-powerful. This is the God who created the entire universe, doing nothing but exercising His will. He spoke, and time, space, matter, and energy all came into being. He's the God who rescued the Jewish people from their enslavement in Egypt. The God who showed his power over the power of the false gods of Pharaoh by sending the plagues. He's the God who split open the Red Sea so the Jews could escape Egypt on dry ground. And then he covered the seas over again, drowning Pharaoh's army. This is the God who had raised up a pagan king who gave permission to the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their walls. The God who had been with them every step of the way. And so Nehemiah says, fear Sanballat. Are you going to fear Sanballat? Fear the Lord. Remember the one that we are here serving. Friends, this is the answer when we face opposition of all kinds. We pray and then we remember our God. We remember who He is and what He is like. 
And we remember how he has led us from the start of our lives right up to the present time. And we remember this and we gain strength from this. And we have confidence that the God who began a work in us will see it through to the final day. He says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. And then he adds this. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So you remember the Lord, and then you fight for what's rightfully yours. You see, Judea was their home. They were called the Jews because they were from Judea. They had the right to be there. It's where their loved ones were all buried. It's where their homes currently stood. It's where their families lived that very day. And so Nehemiah says to them, no more trembling before these foes. You trust in God. You realize God is on your side and you fight for what belongs to you. You fight for your family. You fight for your land. You build this wall and you don't stop. That's his sermon. And so they pressed on once more, having prayed, having taken prudent measures to ensure their safety, and having stirred their courage up again with this sermon, they now press on. And they press on with faith. Verse 15, it says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his Work. So somehow, the, the enemies of God's people learned that the Jews had discovered their plot to invade. And now that the plot has been discovered, it is unraveling. But notice that Nehemiah, he attributes this to God, not to any of their own ingenuity. He says God frustrated their plan. And this enabled them to get back to work. You see, these people had faith in God. They had prayed to him. They had remembered him. And God had answered their prayers. And now they're working again. They didn't just go on in faith, but also with courage. Look at verses 16 through 18. It says, And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, half held the spears, shields, bows, coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Now here, once again, we see Nehemiah's administrative genius. He believes that God is going to deliver them, but he's also taking these prudent steps. He's making sure that everyone is going to be safe. Here's what Nehemiah does in these verses. First, he establishes himself as the commander of the entire group. And then he appoints a trumpeter to stand beside him. And the trumpeter will blast out Nehemiah's military orders if they should ever be necessary. And then he also had a special unit of young men that he organized in 12-hour shifts. Half would stand guard while the other half slept, and then every 12 hours they would switch places. And then for everyone else, Nehemiah established these guidelines. The builders would work with both hands, but they would keep a sword strapped to their side so that if the enemy came, they could drop their tools, pick up their weapon, and fight. And he even had a plan for the helpers. These are the ones who would hand the workers their tools or their stones and 
and things. The helpers would hand materials off to the builders with one hand while holding a weapon with the other hand. And friends, in this way, the work of God would continue while the city also hardened itself against invaders. But think of the courage this would have taken. Knowing that all around your city, there were hordes of people that despised you. They despised your God, and they wanted nothing more than to, to cut you down and to tear down your walls, to ruin the work that God was doing in Jerusalem. But to realize that the work was so important that it had to go on no matter the threats. And so you learn to do your job with, with one hand passing materials, the other hand wielding a sword. Or the builder learns how to build with both hands but to quickly grab for his sword if it should be needed. And the guards learn to stand watch for any threats on the horizon. You're building with courage now. And also optimism, verses 19 and 20. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. We are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. And our God will fight for us. So as the work is going on, the, the workers are really spread thin. So Nehemiah develops this strategy. He says, okay, I'm going to send the trumpeter to the point of the invasion, if it should come. And he'll blast his trumpet right where the invasion is coming. When that happens, everybody drops their tools. Everybody goes toward the sound. And in that way, we can concentrate our forces and we can repel the invaders. The implication here, God will fight for us. That means victory is assured. They're optimistic about the results. And then finally, verses 21 and 23, they fight with resolve. He says, So we labored at the work. Half of them held the spears from the break of dawn till the, suns came, till the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem. Let's get ourselves behind the protection of the walls. That they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. And then notice verse 23, Nehemiah sets the example. He says, So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So they are so committed to this job. They're not even going to change clothes to go to sleep at night. They're going to stay in their work clothes. They're going to keep their weapons at their side so that if there is any threat at all, they are ready at a moment's Notice. Now, my friends, just like the people of Nehemiah's day, we too have a cause. We are the people of God, and we have a cause. Our cause is laid out in our Lord's great commission. We are to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of God and the transformation of this world. Friends, it's a good cause. We are privileged to be a part of it. And it's a cause that begins in our households as we make disciples of our own children, but then it extends outward to our community as we work together as a local church to reach the city of Marshall and surrounding towns and cities. 
Then it extends beyond this local area as we deploy our missionaries, one of whom is over-teaching pastors right now, but as we deploy our own people to go overseas to make disciples there. We have a great mission extending from here to the ends of the earth. Friends, be sure that as we do this good work, as we witness, as we share the gospel message together, as we see some real concrete successes for our efforts, that we will face the jeers of the unbelieving world. Parents, people who do not understand what you are doing will, will ridicule you for your efforts. Church members, you will face this. As a congregation, we have and we will continue to face the angry social media posts, the letters to the editor in the local newspaper, the sarcastic voicemails, and on it will go. It will continue. Remember, we live in negative world now. And the more success we have as a church, the more intense that opposition will grow, perhaps even rising to the level of threats to our own health. Friends, we have absolutely no reason to grow timid, for 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given to us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So we will continue to press on, my friends, my family, right alongside your families. We will press on together in this good work. And we will do this by praying, praying more fervently than we ever have before, praying that God would clear the way before us so that our gospel is not hindered. And we will take prudent measures to ensure the safety of ourselves and of our children, measures that we have already taken and will continue to take. And we will encourage one another with the truths of the gospel. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Friends, we are going to continue this good work. We're going to continue it in faith, and with courage, with optimism, and with resolve. And together, friends, together, we are going to build something here that is worthy of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will endure for our kids and their grandkids and their grandkids after them, should the Lord tarry. We're going to do that here together with the Lord's help. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you for this day, for this time you've given us in your word. Help us, Lord, to build our resolve. Give us an immunity to the, to the jeers of the unbelieving world, to the threats that they would try to, to carry out against us as we find great success in our gospel work. Lord, give protection to your people. Give gospel success to your people. Use this church to bring many to glory. Help us, Lord, to build something here worthy of the name of your Son. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.